16, 17, where a brother was reading, Jesus says about him, he, that, uh, the Spirit himself, the Father will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you. He will dwell with you, or he dwells with you, that's present tense, and shall be in you. John 14, verse 16 and 17. So it's un, Disputed that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is God and that He's a person. Third, yes, He is God. He's described as God. Acts chapter 5 tells us that Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, Ananias particularly, had lied against God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears the characteristics of God in His nature. In John, uh, Romans 15 verse 30 says that we're to love the Holy Spirit. And much more proof could be given. I don't think in this congregation there would be a whole lot of need to prove that. So those are just certain points I wanted to bring out to establish that fact that the Holy Spirit is God. The Westminster Confession, I think, puts it very concisely that God exists in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in substance and in power. That word substance actually is the word for nature. He is equal in power and in nature. He has the same nature as does the Father and the Son. Second question we have to ask, why would, and this has to do with our subject this morning, this morning why would Jesus have to have the Holy Spirit? It almost sounds a little semi-heretical, possibly, like Jesus had some deficiency, something lacking that he needed an extra oomph, as it were, to fulfill a mission that he couldn't do apart from the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not the case. So we'd still have to answer the question, why would one who is described as very God of very God need anything at all? If he's God, does God have any deficiencies that he would have to be reliant upon the Holy Spirit? Secondly, the Spirit is described as an enabler, as an empowerer, as an animator, or as a supernatural force or energy. That's who the Holy Spirit is and who the, what the Holy Spirit does. So would Jesus need all of that to fulfill what He came to accomplish? Well, the Bible tells us, and I would put it this way, that He utilized the Spirit. He wasn't in his Godhead, dependent exclusively or necessarily on the Spirit, but voluntarily he chose to. And of course, this was in the plan of the Godhead, that in the plan of redemption, which Jesus came to activate, it would be necessary that the whole Godhead be engaged in this process. The Father sending the Son, the Son being the Savior, and the Spirit being the Regenerator but also He is included as being within the operations of Christ's mission here in the world. Why did He need the Holy Spirit? First, I want to say it was an indicator for Him to have the Holy Spirit. It was an indicator of His authority. In the book of Samuel, who was the first king of Israel? Do you remember who that was? Saul. Let's, let, I'm going to read this to you. 
And I want you to notice the Holy Spirit in his life at the outset. First it says that Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, and he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, now this is Samuel saying this to Saul, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of the prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. What a description. If there's ever a description of a new birth of a regenerated person, that verse could be one of the strongest. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and you will prophesy with them and you'll be turned into another man or another person. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. And isn't that true of every regenerated person? God is with you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? What a wonderful claim to be able to say that God is in us and God is with us. And then it goes on to say in verse 9, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Wow! Another man, another heart. He's prophesying with the prophets, and the Spirit comes upon him. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. That gave him authority as king. The Spirit came upon him. For Jesus too, at his baptism, the Spirit came upon him. He is anointed there as king. Prior to this, we call it the secret years of Jesus. And what age was Jesus baptized at? Approximately 30. It says he was about 30. By the way, that was the age that the priests began their ministry at the age of 30 when they were anointed. Take it as you will. I think there's some significance to that. In the Old Testament, we have Samson, we have Gideon, we have various judges that are have the Spirit of God come upon them. And it gives them authorization to do things for the Lord. Jesus himself says, If I by the Spirit cast out demons, then you can know that the kingdom of God is come upon you. Or that the kingdom of God has come. If I by the Spirit. So that the having the Holy Spirit gave him this authorization. Secondly, he needed to serve it needed, and I say utilize, he purposely, in, in the plan of the Godhead, that this Holy Spirit would be, you could say, a partner in the work of what Jesus was going to accomplish. It tells us about Jesus, and this is an important point. He became a servant. So he emptied himself of his full divine essence, okay, outwardly, and he took on a complete manhood apart from sin. This gets a little complex, I know, when we talk about the incarnation and what does it mean for Jesus to God, to God become a man and now be the God-man. No one will ever figure that out, at least in this lifetime. 
So he emptied himself of his full divine essence to take on complete manhood apart from sin. He could have certainly utilized his divine powers at any given time, but oftentimes he chooses not to. I think there's reasons for that, and I'll get to that. He utilized the Spirit as one who was dependent, and yet at the same time, the one who was depending on the Holy Spirit was still upholding all things by the word of his power. Figure that out. He could at any time have flexed his divine omnipotence, but he let all righteousness be fulfilled. John is shocked. You're coming to me to be baptized? You who are going to baptize people in the Holy Spirit and with fire, and you're coming to me, the inferior one, to baptize the superior one? Jesus says, let all righteousness be fulfilled. The meek and mild and lowly Lord Jesus is saying, let all righteousness be fulfilled. The one who could have called angels at any time by his command and they would have immediately attended to him. When he said to John, the, uh, to Pilate rather, he says, when Pilate thought he had Jesus' life in his hands, like how you behave before me is going to determine what I'm going to do with you. What does Jesus say to him? You have no power at all against me except it was given to you from above. Pilate had no idea who he was dealing with. Jesus had this kind of power, this kind of authority. But look at he didn't choose to utilize that power and that divine essence that he had to execute some of these things. He allowed himself to be humbled, to be contrite, to be lowly, to be baptized, to be associated with the remnant of Israel, to, to eat and drink with sinners, to reach out to the prostitutes and the tax gatherers, which shocked the religious realm out there who wanted to criticize him because he was associating himself with these class of people. Praise God that he humbled us to realize that we too are in those classes and we sometimes, as it says, such were some of you, yes, he reached us. And the third reason why I believe the Lord Jesus lived and walked and utilized the Holy Spirit was to extend the family of God. Why was it important for Jesus to receive the Holy Spirit? Can we have the slide, next slide? I want to first talk about the anointings of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. There are three occasions specifically. One is at His conception. The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Luke one thirty five. The Holy Ghost shall come upon... And that womb birthed Christ or created Christ, I should say. This is, this is talking about the conception. His conception was generated by the Holy Spirit of God. Of course, this is His earthly humanity side. Secondly, at His baptism, which we've already read... The Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Luke 3.22 And then at his ascension, he received the promise of the Father. In Acts 2.33 it says, Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. 
that Holy Spirit that Jesus received at His ascension, when He sat down at the right hand of God as He was invited by the Father, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. God had a seat ready for Him that He earned to have the highest, the most exalted place in all of known creation and the uncreated creation wherever. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. God gave Him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. There was an exaltation there. And in that exaltation, in that coronation of Jesus as King, the Spirit of God came upon the Lord Jesus, who He in turn now distributes it to others. And we become now partakers of the divine nature. It says that we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What rights do we have? To have those claims. Because we have the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that entered into the Lord Jesus. Now, I, we first read in Genesis chapter 8, and we talked, uh, discussed this at the camp devotions, if you were there, how that when Noah sent out the dove, it said that the dove found no place to put his feet on. No place. And it, isn't it true that if Jesus hadn't come into the world... Where could the Holy Spirit possibly reside? There wasn't anybody here that was qualified for the Holy Spirit to come down upon and not just come upon like Samson and Gideon and different prophets and writers of the Old Testament, but it says uniquely about Jesus that the Spirit remained on him, abode upon him. In regards to Saul that we read earlier, how that the Spirit of God came upon him, the Holy Spirit left him. Left him. That's why when David falls with Bathsheba, commits adultery and murder, his heart is broken. He thought he lost it all. He thought particularly that he lost his rights to be king by having the Holy Spirit. Because it was the right of the holy of, of a king by God's choice to give to the king, Israeli, Israeli king, the Spirit of God. So when David says, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, he's not that's not a prayer that should be on the lips of believers. It, the Spirit can never be removed from us. Amen. The Bible says we're sealed until the day of redemption. If the Lord says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you then we have assurance that we have a permanent resident of the Spirit of God within us. He'll never leave us. Amen. Now, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God, can't we? We can despise prophesying. We can, what else do, you, do we do to the Spirit? There's another adjective I'm missing. We can grieve Him. We can quench the Spirit. That's the other word. So those are our responsibilities on what we do with the accompanying Holy Spirit of God within us. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next week or two. Now let's go to the next slide. We've already read this, but I want to repeat it as it's mentioned in John. I saw the, John B. record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom you will see the Spirit descending, and notice again, and remaining on him the same is he who baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And we're going to talk about 
Holy Ghost baptism in, in the coming week or two. And I saw in their record that this is the Son of God. Now remember, after Jesus was baptized and the Spirit comes upon him, now this is his launching pad. His baptism, he emerges from the water, the Spirit descends upon him. The Father said, this is my Son. And you know, Old Testament kings of Israel were classified as sons. But not in a, a way like this, where the Spirit, like a dove, physically descends upon him and remains on him, that is the Spirit, of course, remains it with him permanently. Whereas in kings of the past, and others of the past, the Spirit would come and go, but not so with Christ, because it was a perfect man. And because of he being a perfect man, and the Spirit being able to dwell upon him, that has reference to you and I. And we'll get to that. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, is what Jesus reads after he is first remembered. And I'm going to read what Spurgeon says about this, as he connects them very well. He says, the Spirit specially rested upon Christ. The manhood of Christ was begotten of the Spirit of God. When our Lord was baptized, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And then what? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, Jesus could have confronted the devil without the Spirit. But I'm trying to show you that there was a, a purpose in God for Jesus to utilize the Spirit who comes along in the life of Christ in what Jesus performed. He returned then after his temptation with the devil. He returns into Galilee. How? In the power of the Spirit. There was no, there was no decrease in the Spirit's empowerment of Christ. He returned in the power of the Spirit. When he began to preach, his first words were from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The dove has come and rested upon me. It remains upon me. I'm not a Saul. I'm not a David. Uh, it will never be the case that I will ever have to say, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because he is worthy, worthy, worthy. The Spirit remains upon him forever, all his lifetime. A perfect man. He says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. His ministry stood in the power of the Spirit. All through his life, the Spirit of God rested upon him in fullness of power. For God, and this is an amazing verse, John 3, 32, I believe, it says, God, or 34, God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Who's that referring to? I can see it having reference to the New Testament believer, but I think in context, it's referring to God giving the Spirit to Christ, not like in times past, in partiality or, or pa uh, partialness uh, or, or uh, a decrease of the Spirit, but he gave the fullness of the Spirit to Christ because he was a perfect man and was the Son of Man and truly the Son of God. Next slide. The role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. How God, Acts 10, 38. How God, and this is Peter preaching in Cornelius' household. How God, he's saying, anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. When Jesus referred to Jesus of Nazareth, talking about him as the normal Jewish boy, the Jewish man that lived in Israel, lived in Nazareth. 
how God anointed that Jesus of Nazareth and everybody was known from the town they came from, uh, Simon of Cyrene and this one from there and so on and so forth. Jesus was a Naz from Nazareth. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Acts 10.38. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. 1228, I quoted that already. I drive out demons by the Spirit of God. Then the kingdom of God has come to you. Hebrews 914, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Underscore that. Through the eternal spirit. There are through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without spot to God. See the utilization of the spirit in Christ's ministry in the highest of them, you could say, when his consecration to say in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will. If there was anything to shun in Jesus' life, it should have been the crucifixion. What man would not have wanted to avoid a crucifixion. Stock naked on a tree, bruised and beaten, and most importantly of all, to have the wrath of God poured out upon him. If it be possible, take this cup away from me. That's the manhood of Jesus crying out, shrinking back. But through the eternal spirit, he offered him that what it the eternal spirit is the Holy Spirit. This is not some inanimate force. This is the action and activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Lord Jesus. Next slide. Luke says this, after Jesus rises from the dead, is how he begins the book of Acts. In my first book, O Theophilus, this uh, governmental figure of some sort, we believe, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Giving instructions how? Through the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Now I have said um, that one of the purposes for Jesus to take and have the Holy Spirit in him was to extend the family of God. How could that be? Jesus partook of the Holy Spirit so that we could be inheritors, heirs, family members, of the Godhead. You know, it's amazing that we, this some kind of has offended some Christians in the past, uh, and it, it took me back a little bit to think about Jesus as our brother, as our elder brother. Spurgeon uses the word frequently. Others have as well. To refer to Jesus, you know, we use the word brother, uh, hey, sister, brother. You know, it, it's sort of like a familiar term, and it, it's kind of like a, we use it in a slang way, or we have, if you know what I mean. 
sort of a lot of familiar camaraderie that you may have with somebody. That's not what would be meant when it tells us about him that he's not ashamed to call us what? Brother. Brother. He's not ashamed to call us that. So if, he, if he's calling you and I, brothers, now that includes brothers and sisters, sisters. There's no uh, gender preference here. I think the word brother, brethren, oftentimes is used as a generic term to apply to the whole uh, family of God, the, the two, the, the two um, uh, genders, of course. Uh, so he's telling us that you and my family, when Jesus was in a crowded home and they were trying to enter in his own actual family to go see him, uh, they said to Jesus, they're trying to get in, but they can't. And he said, who is my brother? Who is my sister? Who is my mother? Those who do the will of my father, which is in heaven. That's who my brother is. That's who my sister is. And when Jesus rises from the dead, when he rises from the dead, and remember, uh, was it Mary who wanted to embrace him? She wanted to hug him. Let's go to uh, uh, the next slide. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Romans 8 9. If anyone does not have what? The Spirit of Christ. Now, wait a minute. Is the Spirit of Christ different than the Holy Spirit? No. No. But the Spirit is given a title here as being the Spirit of Christ. Why is that? Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that was in Christ, is the same Spirit who is in you. So to say the Spirit of Christ, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, is essentially saying, and as it says right here, you do not belong to Christ. So when you talk about intimacy in the family, and this is what distinguishes us as believers, genuine believers, people that are born again, that have Christ dwelling in them. When you talk to the unsaved, and even if they say, I believe, some Christians will go away and say, yeah, they're a believer. But wait a minute. I think we should ask the question like in Acts 19 when Paul met the disciples in the upper coast of Ephesus and says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, granted, they were John's disciples, but I have a feeling that the gospel had to be preached to them in fullness so that he could baptize them truthfully in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that verse has really hit me lately. It's a good line to think of, at least, if not to tell somebody who claims they're a believer, and you know what, what they mean by believing. I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, and, you know, and all that. And then when you do a little more digging, you find out that they're just living as like the devil, you know, wants them to, you know, right, and the ways of the world and so on. But a good question to ask somebody is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now that's probably going to puzzle them. What do you mean? But what we do mean is that when you got saved, and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, when you receive the Holy Spirit, when you receive him, moment you believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. After that you believe you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption Ephesians 1.13 and when you believe you receive the Spirit instantly and he now in, is installed in you and he's empowering you and you think differently 1 Corinthians 2.9 says no man knows the things of a man except by the Spirit of man in him if you have an accident, or if you fall, if you have some, I know what you're going through because I'm made of the same stuff as you are. And
okay, if I have, if you have an experience like I had an experience, you lost your mother or you had this or that, and you can relate because you're the same spirit. But when you elevate that to another level, we're talking about, that's why we say we have a true living relationship with the Lord Jesus. Why? Because the Spirit of God has linked us to him. So what he had with him and what he is is what we have now. It says in Peter that we are made partakers of the divine nature. Man, oh man. Don't think little of yourself, but think highly of what God says you are in Christ. You've been made partakers of the divine nature. Philippians 1.19, Paul writes, I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, there may be other examples in the Bible where there is a reference, and I'm going to give you one more, to the Spirit being referred to as the Spirit of Christ. You can look that up and do your own research. Uh, those two, are, I think, are highlight passages, and here's a third one. Go to the next slide. Now the Lord is in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is that spirit. That's a puzzling passage, isn't it? The Lord is that spirit. This is where the, uh, the, uh, um, the Jesus-only people, the oneness people who don't believe that God exists in three persons, they say this is a proof text that Jesus is the spirit. He is the Father, etc., etc. That's so wrong. And I won't get into that heresy right now, but let's look, read on. The Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, what? There's liberty. But we all, where the spirit of the Lord is, we who have received that liberty of the spirit, which is what the verse before says, that when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, right? Some people take that verse to say, see, you can turn to the Lord on your own. That's free willism. No, no, no. The reason why a person turns to the Lord, verse 16, is because of this verse. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty to what? To turn. To take sides with God against yourself. To repent. Because we all want to defend ourselves that, that we're good, we're not that bad. I don't deserve to go to hell. Only the devil and his angels and wicked people and the Hitler should be in hell. I shouldn't be going there. You haven't read your Bible. You haven't been convicted by the Holy Spirit. You don't know what God's thoughts are about you. You think more highly of yourself than you ought to think because the scripture tells you that you have a veil over you. And I know that refers to the Jew particularly, but still it applies to all mankind who's naturally blinded. But where the spirit of the Lord is, that's the only way you can get saved. I can't save you. The best preacher can't save you. Words don't save you. Prayers don't save you. The Holy Spirit of Christ saves you. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open faith, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. How? Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, when those that were believing were getting saved, it says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Who did the adding? The Lord added. To what church? The, the church is those who are believers. The moment you get saved, you're in the church of the living God. You may not belong to Sovereign Grace Chapel or Faith Baptist Church or some other church, but you're in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, 
Mary wants to embrace the Lord. She wants to hold on to him. She has a sense because she thought that, the, that the, someone had taken him out of the tomb, that he was on the missing list, and now she finally realizes that this isn't the goddess, this is Jesus. So she wants to hold him like, Lord, don't leave, stay, don't, don't go elsewhere, remain. And Jesus says, don't touch me, don't embrace me, don't hold on to me, why? He says, because I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren, there it is again, and say to them, I ascend to where? My father and your father, and to my God and to your God. What? What an elevation. What a transformation. We were once strangers to grace and to God. We knew not our danger. We felt not our load. And though friends spoke in the rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah said, Can you meant nothing to me. But when free grace awoke me, what a difference that makes. Now I can say honestly, sincerely, genuinely, my Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Because I have received the spirit of sonship. Sonship. Jesus was the son. He receives the spirit as son. He now gives it to his family. And we as children, sons and daughters can call God our God and his father, our father and his God, our God. Thank you, Jesus. From Jesus Christ, Revelation 1, 5 and 6. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood, verse 6 and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's how we become a part of the extended family. That's why Jesus needed to receive the Holy Spirit, so that we could be embraced by him and have the Spirit of Christ within us, be in that same family as he is in. I hope the Lord has blessed his word to you and that you will go away remembering of who you are in Christ Jesus by the spirit of Christ that now dwells in you. Let's close in prayer. Loving God and Father, we are again uh, astonished um, of what your word teaches us. That Lord, if Jesus had not come into the world, Lord, you would have been alone and fully satisfied with all that you are. You would be pleased with yourself, but Lord, it was your desire to bring many children to glory. We thank you that the method was you sending your son, who was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Thank you for the servant our Lord Jesus, who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. And for those that are here that believe in you, Lord, we thank you that you died in our place. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, so that we can embrace your God as our God and your Father as our Father. We can be heirs with you, Lord Jesus, and joint heirs as well. So, Father, thank you for this great message of the gospel that once again has 
open to us a greater understanding of who we are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, for anyone that has never repented, Lord, we pray the Spirit would move upon them, convict them, even one that may have a profession of faith, and it may just be going through the motions and the actions and saying, Lord, Lord, on their lips, but they don't have a dwelling of Christ in them. Lord, we pray that you would work in their soul in such a way that even now, as they're invited, Lord, to come to faith in Christ, that, Lord, they would be drawn by you and that they would relent and they would surrender and trust Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life. We ask these things and giving you praise in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. I invite you to stand with us.